when we think about how we have traditionally been conditioned as adults with looking at discipline versus looking at punishment, I have found that collectively in our society, we feel as if the consequence isn't painful enough or uncomfortable enough. We won't get that sustainable behavioral change. And that is not accurate. It actually goes against and resists the way the brain and body develop. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reaver. I am very excited to bring you my conversation with Dr. Lori DeSottles today, especially after reading her what I see as revolutionary book, Connections Over Compliance, Rewiring Our Perceptions of Discipline. Lori's work centers around helping educators, parents, and adults who work with children shift the way they think about discipline and reject approaches that prioritize compliance and obedience. She's actively pushing back against reactive and punitive practices that can potentially reactivate the developing stress response systems of children and is advocating for stronger co-regulation practices and regulated brain and body states for adults. So during this conversation, we explore why there is such a powerful foundational belief that discipline and punishment go together, what happens when the traditional methods of punishment are imposed on children who are coming to school with trauma or heightened nervous systems, and why it's so important for educators to take responsibility over their own nervous system regulation. Lori also shared some practical strategies that work for educators as well as parents. Here's a little bit more about my guest. Dr. Lori DeSottles has been an assistant professor at Butler University since 2016, where she teaches both undergraduate and graduate programs in the College of Education. The Applied Educational Neuroscience Certification created by Lori is specifically designed to meet the needs of educators, counselors, clinicians, and administrators who work besides children and adolescents who have and are experiencing adversity and trauma. Lori is also the author of four books, including Connections Over Compliance, which is what we'll be discussing today. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Lori DeSottles on shifting our focus from compliance to connection. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm thrilled to have this conversation this afternoon. I am too. I recently finished your book. I interviewed a lot of authors. And so I read a lot of books. And some of them I can kind of skim and get the gist. Some of them I take lots of notes on. This was one I just wanted to slow down the experience. There's so much incredible, important, critical information in there. So I'm so excited to get into it. Before we do that, I was saying before I hit record that I heard about your work through Dr. Mona Delahook. Of course, Mona recommends someone to me. I pay close attention. Then I saw your book is called Connections Over Compliance, Rewiring Our Perceptions of Discipline. I was like, okay, I need to get that book and we need to talk. So I would love if you could tell us a little bit about who you are in the world and what brought you to be doing the work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, and Mona is wonderful. This work feels to have wings of its own, actually. I think it's been evolving over the last 10 years, 
And as we really look at the wealth of research that supports the developing brain and nervous system, it is, it can be overwhelming, but it also has such application for us as parents and for us as educators. When I think about my three children who are now young adults, I would have parented differently had I known what I know today. And so I hope we can delve into that and really looking at the application and the translation of educational neuroscience through the parenting lens. So I'm excited. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I'm excited. And I do a Zoom call weekly with my Amsterdam bestie. Shout out to Simone. I know she'll be listening to this. But we were having this exact conversation. I said, I've been reading and learning so much. And again, this is what I do. So I'm really immersed in all of the new learning. And I said, it's really the past 10 years, there's been this explosion. And I have an 18 year old. And there's a part of me that's really sad that I did not have access to this material. And Also, I feel really grateful that for all the parents with little ones who can really approach their dysregulated little humans through this lens, it's such an exciting time. It really is. And it's, you we're always parenting, aren't we? When they, we don't stop parenting. And so I think that that's, it's got such relevancy for, you know, our older children, our adolescents and our young adults as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I want to get into so many concepts in the book. And I have three pages of questions, which I will not get into all of them, I'm certain, but I'll do the best I can. But can you tell us why you wrote this book and who you really wrote it for? I started out writing the book frustrated, because an educational organization had asked me a couple of years ago, few, probably three years ago down to write a book about behavior. And so when I looked at the library of books that have been written about behavior, there was no mention. There was also resistance about how a child or adolescent's behavior is about the adult nervous system. And when we look in our classrooms and schools and in our homes, that is not how most of us traditionally have looked at discipline. So being a former special education teacher and school counselor, I really resonated with this research and also as a mom, because I reflected back on the times that I unintentionally escalated everybody around me in my home and in my classroom. So I began really delving into the nervous system and really what is underneath those behaviors that we're punishing in our classrooms, in our homes, and throughout our communities. One of the things that you write about is the way that discipline and punishment in a school setting seem to be intrinsically linked. So I'm just wondering, why is that? Why is it such a roadblock? This is a huge foundational belief that these things go together and this is the way you approach things. And why is that in place? I'm just wondering, because that's what this book is really taking on. It really is. And when we think about how we have traditionally been conditioned as adults with looking at discipline versus looking at punishment, I have found that collectively in our society, we feel as if the consequence isn't painful enough or uncomfortable enough. We won't get that sustainable behavioral change. 
And that is not accurate. It actually goes against and resists the way the brain and body develop. So that is, that's a big piece of this. I, I think another contrasting point that I'm learning every day is that discipline is really to sit beside a child. Punishment is looking backwards. It's reactive. Discipline is moving or looking forward. So when I think about the similarities and the differences, and again, in the word punishment is punitive. And we know that children and adolescents who are carrying anxiety are children and adolescents who are struggling with these behaviors are oftentimes carrying pain. And when we try to traditionally punish that pain, it backfires. It doesn't work. It may bring compliance for a minute or two or an hour, but we're not experiencing the lasting changes that includes social and emotional and physiological well-being. Yeah, and you write a lot in the book about trauma, about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and really what is going on behind the scenes with so many of these children. You're pushing for school systems that are responsive to that trauma, understanding of that trauma. Can you talk about what happens to kids who already have these heightened nervous systems who come into school with one or multiple ACEs who have traumatic experiences. And this includes many neurodivergent kids as well. What happens when those traditional methods of punishment are imposed on those kids? Well, what happens is we're unintentionally escalating the stress response systems in the nervous system. And we don't intend to do that. When we're using traditional protocols of discipline or punishment, timing out, secluding, nagging, yelling, threatening, those can oftentimes re-traumatize a child. And their little developing stress response systems are already heightened. So what that means is, is that they are in a nervous system state of survival. And when any of us experience chronic adversity or we're feeling chronic stress or anxiety, the brain begins and the nervous system begins to protect us because of that survival state. So in protection, we're not able to think clearly. We're not able to be logical. We don't care about rewards or stickers. All of that goes out the window because we're in a state of survival, meaning that our brain and nervous system is functioning possibly in fight flight or we are shutting down, collapsing, and retreating, conserving energy. In schools, that can look like high absences. It can look like failing grades, not completing homework. And in our families, too, it can be just shut down, disengaged. So those are the significant factors when we refuse to look underneath that behavior and we're still disciplining in those punitive ways. There's a quote from your book that I wrote down. It seems impossible to teach a student the mandated academic standards when the student's brain is wired for survival, which means that the students are prepared to protect, defend, flee, and fight the moment they walk into school. Absolutely. 
we cannot afford not to prepare the nervous system for learning first thing in the morning. And it's true in our homes. When I think about the routines and rituals that we have as parents, whether it's bedtime, whether it's getting up in the morning and getting ready or transitioning during the weekends, oftentimes we neglect to prepare that nervous system for what's next. And that is what in the schools we call that maybe a morning meeting or we might call it bell work, but it's where we are building engagement, fascination, and present moment awareness the second we come in the door or leave. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. 
There are things you're saying that to me are drawing attention to some of the more ridiculous aspects or or, or directions that we've been pointed in by well-meaning professionals. But you talk about sticker charts versus survival. There's such a disconnect, like a kid who's in a fight or flight state is going to care about a sticker, right? And as you're talking about preparing a child's nervous system, what I wrote down was timers. Like I thought that was preparing my child for transition, but that is probably sparking my kid's nervous system. It can spark a nervous system because there's panicking in that time. It's fast. It feels as if we're boxed in. So the traditional ways that I learned how to parent or even teach in a classroom were just, I think, kind of generational practices that we never questioned before. When I look back on that, it's really, a, it's a wonderful time. It's a frustrating time. And for many adults, we as parents or educators will resist change because what we've always done feels more familiar or comfortable to us. And we forget that discipline is from the word disciple, which is about following not my agenda, but following my child's. And this is where we want to strengthen relationships through the conflict. We have an opportunity when there is dysregulation from our children to really sit beside them and to share in their pain, to validate that hurt, to validate that dis-ease And that's something that I really did not do as a mom as well as I could have looking back. I am now and it works. I think Sarah Desitel, my middle daughter, calms more quickly when I validate her feelings than any other technique I've ever integrated or used. I have had the same experience for sure. And I think there's some resistance. There might be parents or educators who think that they're giving in to the child who are being too permissive or or whatever that looks like. But the reality is it can almost be a profound flipping of a switch to just sit and be calm in that space, how quickly it can deescalate something. It absolutely can. And I think the biggest shift in this work when we think about rewiring our perceptions is the adult nervous system. And I never thought about that in the ways that how contagious emotions are. And so when I am, my heart's beating fast, I feel angry, I feel frustrated or irritated without saying a word, my children pick up on that through my face through my tone, the way I posture. And our oldest son will pick up on that over the phone. He's so sensitive to the nonverbal. He hears that frustration in my voice, even as a young adult today. Yes, these kids, I wrote in my book that they can read a room better than a seasoned politician. Like they can pick up on so many energetic cues. They're very perceptive, these kids. I want to look for a moment just at this idea of behavior management, because that does seem to be something, again, in homes 
and in schools that that is what we're looking for to manage a child's behavior. Anything to add about why we really want to move away from that model? And and maybe how do we even get people to open up to the idea of shifting away from that model? Well, one of the things that's been very helpful for me as a parent and an educator is looking at and reflecting upon past discipline experiences. Because if I'm authentic and I'm open to looking in the past and looking at the discipline, what I'm calling stories, what are they telling me? Because to manage another is impossible. Human beings did not evolve to manage each other. We evolved to cooperate and to collaborate. And in ancient times, there were so many indigenous groups that looked at children as sacred beings. And we've moved away from that. And when I say look at my discipline stories, if what I was integrating in our home or in a classroom was working, then we would have seen and experienced a felt safety from our children or adolescents. And that behavior would eventually fade away. But oftentimes we don't see that. We're back at it again. We're addressing the same behaviors. And so I think that is the difference between behavior management and behavior engagement. Engagement is really, as I stated just a few minutes ago, following the child's agenda and it's meeting them where they are. I just cannot emphasize that enough. Dr. Bruce Perry has this wonderful quote, and I probably won't use it correctly, but he talks about specificity in the nervous system. And he uses the analogy of playing the piano. And he says, you can't learn to play the piano by reading a book about it or listening or watching a YouTube video. You have to put your fingers on the keys. And I think about that with parenting and teaching in that I have to meet my children with breath or with movement if they're in survival, whether that's taking a walk or we have some practices that we've created ahead of a crisis, whether it's grabbing a mint or a bottle of water or shooting basket or taking a warm shower, wrapping up in a blanket for a few minutes, giving each other time and space. That's that specificity that Dr. Perry talks about, and it has such relevance and application for us. First of all, there's so many wonderful resources and ideas in here for educators, many of which apply to us as parents as well. But what they can do to be more responsive to these kids and to show up in a way that would really support everybody involved in that dynamic. And there's a chapter about the ways in which educator brain and body states create the emotional climate in the classroom. And that's just something I've thought a lot about. Listeners of the podcast know that when my child was really little, there was one teacher in particular who shamed my kid in the classroom. It really kind of set a tone for the kind of child Asher was, and other kids followed suit. There's so much responsibility, not just for that individual child and how they're going to internalize that experience, but then how other kids are going to develop their thinking about neurodivergence and about just different ways of being. I'm wondering when doing this work, how open have you found educators to this idea of really thinking about that responsibility and working to change the way that they show up with difficult children? I think 
I've seen more of an openness and an awareness since COVID because I think the pandemic has really shown a light on the gaps that we are seeing in our classrooms and in our communities and our homes. And what's interesting that I write about in my new book that's coming out this fall, early winter, and I talk about it in connections too, is that our emotions are so contagious. We're such relational creatures, social creatures, that our nervous systems spill out into the world. And so we have a second grade classroom now that has a collective nervous system state. Or in our home, when one of our children are struggling, we as a family carry a nervous system state. A school can carry a nervous system state. And as Deb Dana says so beautifully, the goal is never about regulation. The goal is to recognize when you're dysregulated, or as we say in our house, when you're rough. And that moves us as a family and as a classroom from states of protection to states of growth. And it's very, very important for us to understand how impactful that relational piece is as we parent and teach. Yeah, there was another quote that I pulled out. You include these resilience touchpoint statements for really deepening relationships with staff and students. I thought all of these, you know, I want to write them down everywhere. So I remember to say them to my child because I think they were so powerful. One of the ones I wrote down is I respect and trust you for who you are. There's nothing you could do to change that. I mean, that almost brings tears to my eyes to say that. And I can imagine how profoundly that could shift a child's experience to have an adult who they're in relationship with really see them in that way. It's the most powerful presence we can gift a developing nervous system to feel felt and seen and heard is healing and it's repairing. So thank you for bringing up that quote. It's very important. Yeah, it is so important. And it's never too late to do this work with a child, right? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up because not only does the brain have plasticity, but the nervous system has plasticity. And most of us have ways of being or doing or disciplining or teaching or parenting by, we have habits by default. We go about life in ways that we just know and that feel familiar. Maybe it was the way we were raised. Maybe it's the way we were parented. But what we're talking about is very helpful. And that's neuroplasticity that's intentional. And when we are aware of our nervous system and the plasticity of the developing brain and body of our children, that's a superpower that we have as human beings. It's never too late. It sometimes takes a little longer and it might take a little more intentionality and effort, but the nervous system is constantly changing and shifting and sculpting based on experiences each and every moment. Yeah. Well, I love that reminder that this is really a long game. You wrote in your book, we may be good at stopping the behaviors we cannot tolerate, but replacing and learning new behaviors is a process and can be an endurance event. And I wrote down, yes. I mean, this is a long process and that can be sometimes 
not what people want to hear, especially if they're dealing with pretty challenging behaviors. I love the reminder that when we consistently show up and do this work, the change happens. It's just not an overnight thing. Absolutely. And we've got to look at minutes and hours. And we've got to look at, you know, if we had a temper tantrum for 45 minutes, and the next time it was 42 minutes, that is a win. That's the process that we have to focus. And it's so hard when we are just sitting so close up to those heightened emotional states. It's really hard for us to take a step back and to reflect, okay, we are moving in the right direction. We'll be right back after this quick break. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. So I would love to spend just a few minutes talking about some of the ways that you support educators in changing the cultures in their schools. To me, this is revolutionary, right? We've had Dr. Ross Green on the show before to talk about his work with collaborative proactive solutions and really trying to address corporal punishment and other things happening in school. So I mean, this is such important work. I want every educator to read this book. But what I love about it in that way is that when we talk about education, so many teachers are, they're overwhelmed. They feel like, well, I have to do this because this is what works. There are no other options. And you are providing so many ideas and options in this book. So I'd love if you could share even a couple of strategies or approaches that you share with educators that can really make a big difference by making some tweaks to the way a teacher shows up. What we're looking at is a framework, first of all, for educators. It's not a program. It's a framework that's entitled Applied Educational Neuroscience. And it's as much for parents as it is for educators. This framework has four pillars that blend together. They don't work in isolation or in a silo. 
And so when we think about those four pillars and the practices, what we're sharing with educators is that first of all, it's about my nervous system. So I need to check in with myself and we're giving teachers and administrators and social workers and counselors, really lots of practices and the science to support those practices that we know we can unintentionally jump into a power struggle or conflict. So that's really at the heart of this is my nervous system state as an adult. Co-regulation is really not so new now to a lot of people. We've been talking about it for the last few years, but it's being able to share my emotionally available, safe nervous system with a child or an adolescent who needs some draining off of that anger or frustration or anxiety. That leads to touch points. And touch points are those micro moments of connection. It's validating. It's noticing. It's asking those questions that require that child or that adolescent to feel empowered. And then the fourth pillar is really exciting, Debbie, because we have been labeling and giving rulings and classifications to our neurodivergent children for so long that what we have found is we're giving our families, our teachers, and our students the language of the science and not pathologizing anxiety or depression, but saying, you know what? Your nervous system is working for you and not against you. Your nervous system is perfection. It is protecting you when you feel anxious. And our children love this. We talk about the amygdala. We talk about the prefrontal cortex. We don't water it down or use analogies. My five-year-olds that I go into classrooms with, they know their amygdala. They love to say the name of it. They love to say the word. One little girl said, I love how it sounds in my mouth. So exhausted from pathologizing what our nervous system does well. And the strengths that that, that go unrecognized when we misunderstand behaviors And knowing, as Mona says so beautifully, you know, behaviors are only indicators. They're just signals of what's happening in the nervous system. Yeah, first of all, I love that amygdala is a favorite word among some little ones. Love that. It's a great word. I totally get that. But what you're talking about, this really is the paradigm shift. And it's profound, this reframe that, oh, your nervous system is working for you. That's what's going on here. And it's such a game changer. So it's very exciting. There's one strategy that I really love that I wanted to share with listeners, and it's to create a takeout stress menu. And you have examples in in the book of what that could look like. Could you explain what that is? Well, I love this too. And it's one of my favorites. And I would have used this not only as a teacher, I would have used this as a mom. So actually, my daughter created the template from Canva. And so we had so much fun doing this together. But we thought about this is a touch point. So it's a menu of just a variety of practices or experiences that might feel good to your child or your adolescent's nervous system. And it's really an opportunity to serve your child. How often do we use those words as parents or as educators? And so I'll have this menu. We might pick a child or two a day. Administrators are are using the menu for teachers. 
and they're saying, what do you want to order today? So as a mom or as a caregiver or as a dad, just anyone who sits beside children, you know, we've offered them a menu for younger children. It can be filled with visual images for our English language learners or for our neurodivergent children who are not reading those words. Images are powerful. On the menu might be, would you like some crushed ice? Would you like a mint? Would you like 10 minutes to have some special time to do their favorite activity? Would you like to text somebody? All kinds of things that we can create and then they can order their top two or three items off that menu. Yeah, I just loved it so much because it's a fun way to proactively plan, right? And to get to know the coping strategies or ways to front load one's nervous system and help them even start the day off regulated. So I love that so much. I did want to ask this question about the back of the book, you compare traditional school accommodations for an IEP or a 504 plan that are written the way we've all seen them. Any listener who's got those, we know what they look like, we know what the goals are. And then you compare that with ones that might be written through an ACEs lens. And that was kind of mind blowing to me just to read that difference. And I'm wondering, are schools using those things? Is this something that listeners could push for to have those alternative accommodations written in? Yes. The answer to your question is yes. It needs to be, we need to make each other aware of this option. So this template, this protocol that you're talking about, accommodations through an ACEs lens, doesn't necessarily replace an IEP or a 504. It can certainly replace an FBA, a functional behavioral analysis or a behavioral intervention plan that I feel so many are outdated because they are focused on behaviors. You know, it can be and, not or. So while we're waiting the months and the time it takes for an IEP to be created, we can offer accommodations. These are like looking at how do we accommodate using touch points, connection? How do we accommodate through regulatory practices? So very, very significant. And we need to push it out there. In fact, it's in the new book. We've revised it a little bit. So it has a little more clarity and some more examples. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because it is so significant in how we as parents, caregivers, or teams of teachers provide consistency and predictability as children move through the day or throughout classrooms so that they are experiencing that consistency. Yeah, it's so interesting. I just, again, when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, this makes so much sense. And all kids would really benefit from that. I just want to note also, there's so many resources in this book. The whole back matter is full of strategies. You have a very extensive section on brain aligned strategies, looking at sensory, looking at cognitive, such great ideas, like so exciting for me to see. You also have a section providing strategies to help teachers self-regulate, which I loved. And I'm just wondering, do you have a favorite strategy or something that you've gotten feedback has been really game-changing for readers? Wow, that is a challenging question. There have been several that have been helpful, but there are some of the focused attention practices, which people get a little funny when we say meditation in schools still, because we understand that meditation is 
not a spiritual or religious practice unless we make it so. So we call these focused attention practices using breath and movement and art, journaling, all the sensory practices that we know can dampen down the stress response systems. One of my favorites, I think, for children and adolescents is, well, there are two, to breathe in color that they love and to breathe out a worry. We also do visualization, like taking deep breaths and playing some nice soft music and moving into your safe space. I think that's in there as well. And it's great for all ages. They do a visualization of the people in the room, the smells in the room, the sights, what are you outdoors? What things are around you? What do you hear? So it's really tapping into the sensory systems as they take a journey on their safe space. Yes, absolutely. So many great strategies. We're wrapping up now, but I do want to note too that you have so many great examples and stories in here of kids who have been pretty intense, uh, pretty challenging kids, kids who might have been written off, kids who might have gone down that school to prison pipeline pathway. I love that you include those and you talk about how being responsive in this way, showing up for that student in this way could actually completely change their trajectory. You have ideas for educators on how to deal with low-level physical aggression, disruptive behaviors, getting out of one seat, walking out of the room, all of those things. So it's very practical in that way too. You're not saying do differently because this matters. You're saying, here's what you can do. Here's the way to support these students and support yourself while you're in the classroom. So I just think it's such powerful work. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm hoping that as this book, Connections, continues to move across the world, that we'll begin to really shift our lens of discipline and see it as preventative. Because so for so long, it's been a reactionary practice. And that, I think, is the biggest shift, is really understanding that it's relational and it's preventative and it, it must be nervous system aligned. Yeah, absolutely. Before we say goodbye, I need to know about your new book. What is that? It's kind of Connections Over Compliance Part 2 because it was written very quickly. And I say quickly, but it's been a long process in that I began working with Dr. Porges at Endev, Dana, creating modules, just looking at polyvagal theory in our schools. So this book is also addressing discipline. It's for parents and educators, but it's looking more deeply into the nervous system states and the collective nervous system states. The title is Intentional Neuroplasticity, Moving Our Educational System and Our Nervous Systems from Trauma into Growth. So I think we recognize now that what trauma is, I think we're learning about trauma. This book is addressing now what? Now what? I hope you'll come back on and talk with us about it when it comes out. It sounds wonderful. Before we say goodbye, where would you like listeners to go to check out your work? I have a website called revelationsineducation.com. And so it's revelations, plural, in education.com. And there are so many practices that some are in the book, which you can now download, print. They're yours. You can have them but they're for parents and educators. That's great. So listeners, I'll have links to Lori's book, 
website and other resources and the other names that kind of popped up throughout this conversation. I'll have links to that too, in case you want to dive deeper. Lori, thank you so much. I'm so grateful that we got to connect and learn more about your work. And I'm excited to stay connected and see what you do next. Thank you, Debbie. It was really fun having this conversation today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.